ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is Welcome to another edition of Hard to Paint, everyone. I, of course, am David Grubb, so welcome back. Um, today, frequent guest, Daniel Lust, host, uh, co-host of the Conduct Detrimental Podcast, is with us once again to discuss some of the legal issues in the world of sports. How are you doing, my friend? Uh, always a pleasure to come on with you, Dave. I am uh, I'm all good. Uh, as we uh, have seen during COVID, yeah, no sports means a, a busier time for a sports lawyer. So it's uh, very nice to be in the middle of all of this. Absolutely, especially now as we are getting so much closer to actual play dates um, for the NFL. College has already started and high schools and a lot of states coming up very quickly. Um, the biggest story right now in college football is still the ongoing uh, drama in the Big Ten uh, now state lawmakers from seven states have uh, issued their support for the Big Ten reversing its decision. The president, of course, has used his bully pulpit to try to get the Big Ten to reverse. First, let's talk about the vote. It was 11 to 3 to postpone the season, but there is still a tremendous amount of controversy in how that vote was uh, conducted. Yeah, so um, I I'm with you. I, I feel you know, for better, for worse, uh, and you and I have spoke about this offline. I don't, it's just my personal, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in player empowerment. You know, if players want to play, so be it. Um, you know, but I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily the politician's place to, you know, put their foot down and, and force these private associations, like the big 10 is a private association to force them to do or not do something. So, you know, uh, you can't mistake the optics of this. Kevin Warren, former um, lawyer, you know, big firm lawyer, went to go work for the Vikings, very highly decorated individual. They have a vote and we can get into the optics of the vote. But from the vote, you know, a week or so later, Kevin Warren goes, OK, the vote is final. We are not coming back for the fall. You you kind of pull the rug out from under him. Uh, if now all of a sudden they're reconcerting, right? What what change? As far as I've seen, there's no new technological, you know, um, innovations on, on COVID-19, no early detection stuff. So it's pretty much a, a political power play. So if people are okay with that, um, that the politicians could just step in and disrupt a private organization, you know, football is that important. Maybe you use that, no pun intended, that Trump card. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, once you open up those waters, then, then uh, it's kind of easy picking. So I don't feel that comfortable with politicians pushing around um, the sports. I just, I don't, I don't feel comfortable with that world, but you know, if, if you want to use it, if Big Ten football in 2020 is so important, um, you know, that's the power to you. So, you know, I guess I guess that's kind of the backdrop of it. And then I guess, Dave, we can get into the, the mechanics. So um, my, my co-host uh, of the podcast, we were able to get a copy of the Big Ten's legal filing in this Nebraska lawsuit. And it was not public. I think it might have come out since. Um, but what it basically said, the Big Ten bylaws, or at least in, in for this particular part, in order to reduce the amount of games in any given season, you needed the approval of nine voting members from the Big Ten conference. So um, they said 60%, but 60% is equal to nine. So all that we've heard on a, you know, anything explicit from the other side, Minnesota's president, Michigan State's president said that either A, a vote did not occur, or B, it's unclear if a vote occurred. 
Penn State's athletic director, who probably was not in the room, right, just a president and chancellor vote, they said uh, the same thing. It's unclear or it didn't occur. Um, in the Big Ten's legal filing, they didn't have 14 affidavits from 14 different schools. They had one affidavit from the chairman of this president's and, and chancellor's division uh, that was from Northwestern. And he said, by sworn affidavit, it's explicitly clear a vote occurred. I was in the room. The vote was 11 to 3 in favor of cancellation. So if you're going to take the Northwestern guy at face value, um, a guy named Mark Shapiro, that's fine. The problem is Minnesota, Michigan State, and Penn State already said that we're not sure if a vote occurred. So I don't know where they fall in this 11 you know, to 3 situation, but clearly the vote wasn't so clear if three people in the room don't know if a vote happened. Um, and that uh, seems to be at least some indication of evidence that the Big Ten bylaws were not followed properly, which, if you take this to a court of law, could result in the vote being nullified. Now, first of all, wouldn't that have to be an internal thing to, you know, for the Big Ten to, to decide whether or not its own bylaws had been violated? Wouldn't there have to be some type of information that they could provide to do that? Like you, besides the affidavit, if there was a meeting, one would expect that this is a fairly easy solution to this. And you've proposed this, either get the affidavits or it's, you have the minutes of the meeting. It had to have been recorded for the record. And if somebody didn't do that, that doesn't make the Big Ten look very good. And it also seems as if Kevin Warren is being set up. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been following this pretty much pretty closely on, on Twitter. So everyone's clear, Kevin Warren is not one of the 14 that's voting. So he's, I mean, I don't know if there were some reports that he was leading the conversation. He was suggesting that they should cancel and everyone went along with it. But Kevin Warren didn't vote. So, you know, these no, don't let anybody fool you. These presidents of the schools are completely independent. They get to make the final say. So Kevin Warren is a first-year commissioner of the Big Ten Conference. He doesn't have that much power mm -hmm. to force people to do anything. So I think he is being thrown under the bus. But um, they've, we've now uh, heard utter silence on the Big Ten front. We don't have Minnesota's president speaking out. We don't uh, – and I'm just, you know, watching these people posting – I'm not obviously writing to Purdue's president or Northwestern's president, right. but they're getting these boilerplate responses when they're asking for, you know, what happened in the vote. So everyone's clamming up. The Big Ten is not going to blow the whistle on itself. It's going to take people um, like the, the attorney that's, uh, you know, representing the you know, Nebraska eight players to get this emergency discovery to try to get uh, some indication uh, that uh, what's called egregious conduct in the law, a, a court is not going to disrupt a private association's laws or code of conduct absent some evidence of egregious conduct. And Dave, to your point, not keeping the minutes, right? You know, um, not having a proper vote. If there is some evidence of that, the court is going to allow limited discovery to uh, investigate those potential claims. And not coincidentally, uh, what we had last week, Nebraska players filed their lawsuit for emergency discovery. Um, you know, in response, North, you know, um, Northwestern, I mentioned that affidavit. But the Big Ten in general gave up the fact for the first time that it was an official 11 to 3 vote. So they said, that's all you need to know, court. Um, don't worry about it and move on. And they very relevant for, for this conversation. That court was a Nebraska state court. Um, if I'm a Nebraska judge and I have any political aspirations, I am not closing the door. I'm not slamming it on the Nebraska's player's face. I'm allowing some discovery to come forward. So what that mm -hmm. judge said is by September 12th, a couple of days from now, that the Big Ten will need to provide some documents in addition to just telling us it's 11 to three, they need to provide some documents. So we're gonna find that out in a couple of days. And again, I'm, I'm not a big, I'm not a believer in coincidences. 
this past week is when it's been ramping up that they're going to return in October. So if you were someone that felt very strongly that they are considering coming back to not reveal what happened behind the scenes, there seems to actually be some indication of that. Yeah, it just it, it seems to me as if um, the political part of this and, and that interference uh, is really getting to be to the point where it's impossible for the public to understand how these decisions are getting made because they're just the, the campaign is to blind you to your desire for football. That's what this is about, really, because there's no way those players found this attorney on their own. And brother, this is somebody who's interested, had a vested interest in football returning, who went and got a group of guys who were willing to do it. And that's usually how these things go. And, and so I just think that the politics of it have become to the point where these university presidents, nobody wants to be the one who openly admits that they were the one who voted no. And so I think it's just going to be one of these things where they, yeah, Kevin Warren becomes the scapegoat for something, like you said, he has no control over. It was not his decision to make on his own, but he's the face of it, and nobody else wants to own the decision, even though it clearly was made by a supermajority. Yeah, and I'll, I'll do you one step further, Dave. I, I tend to think that, um, you know, eight Nebraska, I, I think it's a little coincidental that it's Nebraska. Again, I'm not, not a believer in coincidences. Coach Scott Frost over there uh, was very adamant in the days following the cancellation. We are playing no matter what. It doesn't have to be in the Big Ten. Um, no other school was that adamant about it. Ohio State had a, some select comments, but not, not you know, we are playing no matter what, even if it's not in the Big Ten. And, oh, wait, of 14 schools, the one that files the lawsuit, eight Nebraska players. So I don't – I don't. Uh, I think it's very possible that lawsuit is being funded uh, by, you know, uh, by, by some booster, maybe even the school behind the scenes. Again, this is not a monetary suit. They're not – I mean, they are seeking – it's, uh, you know, in addition to they want the season uncanceled and they want this emergency discovery. They're claiming uh, interference with their name, image, and likeness rights and uh, expectation of what they could make. Spoiler alert, that law is not, it's not effective right now. So it's, it's, a moot, it's a moot point. I mean, I don't understand what the exact argument is, but um, I'll tell you, I mean, as an attorney looking at this on the outside, it's a kind of a weak case. The stronger, I'll say, wielding of it, the use of it, is to apply this heavy pressure. Hey, we're going to get this emergency discovery. Even if our claim might not have that much chance of it merits, there is no judge in the state of Nebraska that's not going to give us at least the discovery. So I, I think that's the real reason they're using it. Uh, and again, if you're in Nebraska, right, you can't, I mean, you can, you can sue the Big Ten. I don't think that looks that good. But hey, our players did it. Uh, what, what are we going to do? They have a mind of their own. That's the sneaky way to get around it on the optic sense. And that uh, might, might exactly be what's happening here. I, I, I think if Nebraska were to go head to head with the Big Ten, I don't think the Big Ten would have much of a problem to let Nebraska go. I agree. I, I, I think um, I told my dad about the Nebraska Big Ten suit. He goes, they're not in the Big Ten, they're in the Big 12. I'm like, yeah, it's very telling. You don't even know that. Nebraska doesn't belong there anyways. Yeah, it's, I think that marriage was bad from the start. Um, the other issue that's still ongoing and that we're going to have to deal with once season starts is the myocarditis uh, issue of the, the, I mean, Big Ten had 30% of its positive uh, players show signs of myocarditis. How big a concern is this for liability on, a, on these uh, teams' campuses? Well, it depends what day you ask Penn State about that report. If you ask them uh, one day, that's the, the findings. And if you ask them the next day, they never said that they were mistaken. So Penn State uh, is in this Big Ten madness. So uh, I can also think you could read into the fact that a story about 30% of the Big Ten players 
having myocarditis being killed within hours is also independently telling that there is something, some uh, political factors at play. So let's go into the assumption that 30% of the Big Ten players have myocarditis, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if that is the case or not. But assuming that to be the case, uh, look no further than Eduardo Rodriguez with the Boston Red Sox. You know, he's a star pitcher, relatively young, is uh, super athletic. You know, it's perfect shape, all, all of the characteristics that uh, you think would uh, make you immune to COVID-19. Uh, Eduardo Rodriguez is not playing this season because of a heart issue, which is not a one-season injury. That's a potentially career-ending injury. So assuming that to be true, which is a very scary finding, one that sent shockwaves across Twitter, um, and then the shockwaves disappeared uh, equally as fast with this weird retraction, um, that would be a sign, if there's as reason of any, to not play the season. If 30% of your athletes had myocarditis, um, I can't think of a bigger reason. But if that study is invalid and null and void for some mysterious reason within hours of, of it coming out, um, that's a decent sign that somebody in Big Ten country, maybe at Penn State, doesn't want that message being out there because they want to uh, continue to have the Big Ten uh, with a pulse. If you played in spite of the fact that 30% of your athletes have myocarditis, that's, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll say it, I don't think it's that country. So that's a pretty unreasonable decision. It's not just COVID-19. At this point, there are manifesting symptoms beyond just a high temperature and, uh, and not having a sense of taste. That's a heart issue, which is a much more serious uh, infliction at that point. Yeah, and, and that's the thing that I, uh, you notice lately, too, is a lot of these decisions that seem strange, where the majority of Power 5 schools say they're not going to report um, their testing numbers, which to me is is very problematic. These are public institutions, by and large. Um, Outside of Florida, too. Right. And I, I just don't, I don't, I don't get that. I think that that's, these are places where the NCAA should be standing, is standing firm on some um, public reporting of data. They have to, because this is not a one-year thing. This is going to be stuff that we're going to have to have tracking on for four or five years down the road. Yeah, I, I, you know, and, and we've talked about in the past podcast, and um, I, uh, I just had the pleasure of speaking to Notre Dame Law School last week, and I just explaining to them that this is not a one-time deal. Just because you get COVID-19 and recover and you seem fine doesn't mean you're fine. It doesn't uh, prevent you from filing a lawsuit years down the road, not not one year or two years, maybe five, six, seven years, because the point, um, anybody, you know, this is a much easier point. People watch forensic files, they watch cold case, they can solve mysteries 50 years later. There is no statute of limitations on murder. That's just the, the way our country works. Now, similarly, when it comes to an airborne disease like COVID-19 or asbestos or anything that's just kind of floating around, um, your statute of limitations to sue runs from the time you start manifesting symptoms. So if you start having a heart issue eight years from now, you could sue, right? And maybe we'd want to know as it's happening, how many tests are happening. We'd want to know who's getting myocarditis. So not just this class of players, but the next class and the next class could make an informed decision. So I don't think you're doing anybody any favors um, by not releasing those results. Let people have the information. And if they still choose to play uh, on knowing all the risks, knowing all the statistics, power to them. But um, I think it's a little scary to not give them that information. Um, I want to bring it a little uh, more on the business side. I, I pose this question to you offline and um, is it, does it look like in the future? And, and I've talked to a couple of athletes about this and they, they're intrigued by the idea of for the preservation of college football and basketball, the two revenue sports, 
and to, to you see what's going on with some leagues and the you know that are trying to to create this model is it just time for the the power five at the very least to say we're going to professionalize our athletes make them employees during the season they are employees and then in the summers if we can educate them then during summer school and they so choose, then they are eligible to do that. But we want to have a college football program. It's great advertising for our university. And we're just going to stop the hypocrisy and eventually probably open yourself up to more revenue if you did it that way. Yeah, I, I'm very much, uh, I can see a world where the, the NCAA, as we know it, is gone. This whole farce of pretending college athletes are, are not uh, you know, our student athletes, I think that could go out the window. Uh, and the one thing I'll add to that, you know, why I think we're having these conversations, obviously, in, you know, in the G League is starting to siphon uh, some of these top uh, college or high, some of the top high school players coming in, not that many, but enough where they're making some noise, paying them 200 grand, 500 grand. You start extrapolating that and you watch those trends, you know, probably next year and they'll go from taking five guys, they'll take 10 guys, then they'll take mm -hmm. 15. Can't wait that long. Football, you might have a little bit more leeway. That was until um, maybe my favorite wrestler of all time purchased the XFL, and maybe that's the window, right? The NFL has a rule that you have to wait three years until uh, from your high school graduation to be in the pros. There is no law in the in the country that makes you wait that long. You right. can leave as a first year player. So if that's the Rock's goal and he wants to allow, right? And Dave, right now, Justin Fields might be saying. Rock, I'll be the number one overall pick in your expansion draft. That that could happen today, uh, yep. assuming the Big Ten held ground. So I think we're going to start seeing a number of changes, uh, you know, from states like California, from Florida, even outside of the Big Ten. Those are the states very quickly with bipartisan support pass some version of athlete compensation. So if it's the Big Ten, if it's certain, you know, maybe not necessarily Power Five, maybe it's certain schools just banding together in different states and saying, hey, our state supports this. We think what the NCA came up with their name, image, and likeness guidelines is BS. Uh, we want our own version of this, and we're not going to stand for it. Um, I think that's very possible and maybe almost probable, um, you know, even at this stage of the game. Um, here in Louisiana, our attorney general um, uh, has essentially ruled that the high schools in the state that are members of the LHSAA, Louisiana High School Athletic Association, would not be, he's saying definitively, they'd not be liable for any injuries or um, illness related to COVID that a high school player um, could contract. Is that a responsible ruling by a state's attorney general to basically tell citizens already that they don't have a recourse? Um, and basically, intimid I mean, in a state that is poor and as undereducated as Louisiana, when the attorney general says something, parents are going to who, who may have had that idea may back off just because now they think there's no chance. Yeah, I think it's a little I think it's a little unfair. Um, I mean, the problem is the situation is so fluid. I don't think you can make a hard and fast rule that we're not liable for any given reason. I, I just I don't understand for the life of me why that would be put in play. Like, you know, I, I would get it at a certain level if it's, you know, maybe an employer and employee relationship, you know, and that employer uh, is paying that uh, employee to work, you know, that they need some uh, maybe some predictability. When it comes to these high school athletes or college athletes, they're still not getting paid a dime for this risk. So, yeah, I, I'm not sure, you know, 
why they wouldn't be able to sue. And again, what are these lawsuits? It's a way to get paid for your pain and suffering relating to some type of disease. So if you're not being paid some type of salary, right, there's no version of like workers comp for getting COVID, you should be able to sue. Um, and that's, that's part of the risk. Absent some type of waiver that's being signed. Uh, I mean, that's their only way of recourse. So I, I'm pretty much against these kind of bright line rules. You know, unless the, unless the kids are going to agree to this on a, on a case-by-case basis, I don't think it's the legislator's responsibility to say, hey, play high school sports at your own risk. You know, there has to be some, some compromise that's done there. And, and in most of these states, again, the high school associations are private organizations. So I don't think the state can protect a private organization from liability in that case. Could they? Um, no, I mean, it's, it's going to have to depend. Like, even at the Big Ten level, 13 of the 14 schools in the Big Ten are public organizations. I mean, could you have rules that could impact what a private school could do? Sure. Um, but it's not really their responsibility to protect the private organization. It's more for public schools. But, you know, I, I also think it would be a weird world where private schools could play, but public schools couldn't play. I think it's a cleaner rule to have something done across the state level. But I think it's just palpably unfair to to not allow the kids to be making that choice and the parents at the end of the day, if, if parents and kids want to play um, and schools want to play, like I'm seeing, like, you know, I'm, I'm from the Northeast. I'm seeing the news. Connecticut high schools are all protesting. Together. They're all sitting in the field. If the athletes want to play and the schools want to play, you know, so be it. If they want to sign whatever waivers they can, you know, as long as it's informed, I have no issue with it. But to make that decision ahead of time, you can play, but you do it completely at your own risk. There is no recourse, even if you get myocarditis uh, in your athletic career is over maybe your life is ending earlier you can't sue i think that's going too far yeah can you can you break down for folks again who may not have heard this before just the difference for inherent risk um, negligence and contributory negligence which are all going to be big terms going forward yeah so this is a you know louisiana actually has this uh you guys follow a different set of laws obviously than new york yeah napoleonic uh, code which (laughs) yeah you know what they teach us in school it's funny they uh at least in law school, they say, just pay attention to what the 49th state says and then no Louise, no, Louisiana no does Louisiana. something separate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, in general, the way that tort law works, there's a duty uh, and you have to show that whatever entity you're suing, be it a school or a, an arena, they have a duty to protect you, be it as a fan, as a, an employee, or even just as an athlete that's coming into the stadium. Then you need to show that they breach that duty by not uh, affording you a reasonable protection under that, under that method. So maybe... Um, you know, Dave, we were talking earlier, whether it's not reporting accurately the numbers that are uh, positive tests on your site, that could be taking an unreasonable measure under under the circumstances. So, uh, or maybe it's not testing appropriately. Maybe it's testing in a faulty manner. Any type of something that you'd say a wrongdoing, right? Mm-hmm. That just as long as you establish the breach and they breach that duty. The third one is going to be causation. And that's showing that that breach caused the harm. Uh, and then the harm is obviously, you know, we talked about myocarditis and, and whatever else could happen. So the, the issue in all that is going to be causation, showing that wrongdoing is what actually caused your harm, right? It's that, uh, you know, they didn't properly report the amount of tests that were on a given campus and they did it, uh, you know, uh, negligently or however else they did it. That's, you know, maybe some evidence, but you still need to gonna, you still need to disprove the fact that they didn't, you know, that you didn't get COVID from going to CVS or going to uh, the farmer's market or anything, uh, apple picking, wherever else you could have gone off campus. Now, there is something in the law, there's contributory negligence, there's comparative negligence, it depends on the state you're in. Contributory negligence depends on the state that you're in. If you as a, um, as a plaintiff in the case, you did something unsafe, you went beyond protocol, 
that's a, in some states a way to deny complete coverage. So even if the school did something wrong, if you went off campus and you did something unsafe, even though the school maybe should have advised you of the, the risks of going off campus and doing whatever else, uh, there are some states that hold that you can't collect a single dime uh, under those contributory states. Mm -hmm. uh, comparative, uh, at least a pure comparative state, let's say you were 25% at fault for whatever you did, you know, you didn't read some type of warning that the school sent out an email, your recovery will be reduced by, uh, you know, the, the percentage of your uh, culpability. So let's say you would have otherwise got $100,000 from the school from some lawsuit, you're going to get 75 in a comparative state. Meanwhile, in a contributory negligence state, you're going to get a big old uh, squadoosh if they can show that uh, you did something wrong. And there, what there are like four states in the country that are what contributory. I think North Carolina is one of those four. I can't remember the other three, but I, yeah, because I know North Carolina is. Yeah, New York that. is a pure comparative state. Contributory negligence is a, is a great state that's to a be high if you're a defense attorney. Yeah, that's a high bar to reach because if it's zero point zero 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 one percent your fault, it's done. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting. I mean, for I'm in New York, so we can just. We just reduce a pro rata, but if you can get 1% on somebody, which is pretty easy, you just got to convince a juror that you're 1% at fault, uh, you know, then uh, that's a nice defense to the case. Yeah, that's like going 56 and a 55. You're done. You're done. And yeah, you're done. <laughs> um, lastly, before we go, what is the, the difference between this dealing with minors, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, and dealing with a adults is there for parents who may be listening is there something that they need to be prepared for um just on their side and dealing with their kids who are in high school or their college students yeah i think you know dave you and i have spoke about this on a couple of occasions i think it's important um you know i guess number one uh it probably goes without saying but we still as much as people want to say that they know with 100 percent certainty how the virus affects people of a certain um age bracket no one knows for sure. Uh, and anyone that tells you they know, just look at the uh, Power Five conferences about how two said one thing and five and three said another thing. So we're in a world right now where experts who are at the top of their various fields can look at the same exact information and come up with two different results. So even if someone's telling you uh, that 18 to 24-year-olds, that age demographic is uh, not at risk, right? And even, even younger, you know, 13 to 17, not at risk, that is not necessarily true. We are in the very early stages of learning about this virus still. Um, you know, it, it took 20, 30 years to discover AIDS to be able to figure out how to combat it. So we are not near the finish line of, of learning uh, about COVID. So that's kind of step one. Don't let anybody tell you that they know anything for sure. Um, and now the other level of it is, is the one that Dave and I spoke about. In order to sign any type of COVID-19 waiver or any type of, uh, we'll say an agreement for your son to play athletics or your daughter to play athletics, uh, those documents are not necessarily worth the paper that they're they're on. You have to show that the two sides to that equation, be it your you know you as the parent, right, and the other side as the you know Pop Warner football or whatever the other equivalent is, that you had equal bargaining power, right? That you could have gone and uh, played somewhere else, you could have gotten some other you know type of uh, compensation for playing or, or some type of extra risk prevention. So just because you sign a waiver that waives you of all legal rights, just know. You know, if uh, little Johnny, who's 14 years old, gets COVID-19 and you've signed some piece of paper that says you can't sue, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't sue. Uh, there's still going to be another challenge at the courts as to whether that waiver you signed is enforceable. And one of the things they look at is whether you and the other side have equal bargaining power. So, um, you know, uh, not, not that I'm not, you know, I don't practice in Louisiana, but uh, I would I would make sure you speak with your local attorneys to make sure the document uh, is valid and, and don't feel like you're completely out of luck. Uh, if you've signed something like that. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the key is 
don't trust people to give you the information. Don't trust the schools. Don't trust. You have to be active in this process too. You can't uh, allow folks to say they've got this covered for you. That whoever says it, whether it's the school, the coach, anybody at this point, I would tell any parent or any athlete, don't abdicate your uh, responsibility for yourself because you don't know what folks' information that they're getting and you don't know what their motivations are. So your motivation has to be do the best for yourself. Yeah, 100%. I think that's an accurate way to say it. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not one that says all news media is fake and all no, this no, stuff, no. but I, I would just – yeah, but I think it's, you can't always trust – you can't always trust the media blindly. You have to do your own research, and obviously I would speak with doctors and, and attorneys and medical professionals that you trust um, because we're still learning about the virus more and more every day. Don't assume that we figured it out at this point, uh, no, matter, no matter what anybody is saying. Yeah, no, no, you know, contact your high school athletic association, make sure you know their guidelines, make sure you've gotten those things from the, the school as far as their enforcement, so that in case there is an issue, you've protected yourself with information, at the very least, that if you do get in your position where you've got to have a lawsuit or something, you have as much to back yourself up, or to at least ask the questions beforehand to give yourself the best possible assessment of that risk. Yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. And I think people just have to kind of, uh, you know, um, you know and, and I kind of fall prey to this too, David. I, I, you know, I'm from the Northeast where the virus was really bad here for a period of time. Uh, now it's not as bad, but that doesn't mean that we're completely out of the water. And even if I see, you know, I saw this, this chart the other day that hospitalizations at the college level were going way up. I'm sorry, I apologize that the cases were going way up, but hospitalization was kind of flatlining at zero. Again, Dave, to, to the point that we were talking about, just because you're not going to the hospital doesn't mean you're not manifesting some symptoms that might not pop, pop up five, six years down the road. So I can't, I can't fight back every Twitter troll because I don't, I don't have the information to show that, but mm -hmm. I'm just saying there was a world where people thought, you know, I'm just saying, I hate to bring it up, but it's just it's true. You know, people that fought the World Trade Center attack and they're fighting those fires, they might've been fine the next week, maybe they had a slight cough and then four or five years later, these people were losing 40, 50 pounds and no, were passing right. away very early. So you, you can't, uh, you can't just assume that you've beat this thing, uh, you know, no matter how you might feel on any given day. Absolutely. Uh, Dan, thanks so much again for joining me. Every time we talk, it's just really informative and, and really uh, just a great conversation too. I, I enjoy talking with you. Um, please tell folks again, how they can check out the, the podcast and all the other stuff. Cause you're everywhere, man. You're giving lectures, you can participate in seminars. You're doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, I uh, appreciate it, Dave, always. Um, so I'm at Sports Law Lust on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and we have a, a sports uh, sports law podcast. We try to have, uh, you know, from people, Darren Ravel, Tom Mars, who I mentioned, the big college football attorney. Uh, it's The podcast is called Conduct Detrimental. Um, and uh, we have a lot of fun, but it's, a, it's again, this is a very conversation that I'm sure, Dave, your listeners are, are keyed into. You have, you have a very smart guest on. You're hitting some of the issues beyond just – who wins and loses and how Zion looks on any given night. You know, there's some, some big uh, geopolitical issues that we try to get into as well. We're Absolutely. not, I'm not, I'm not a pol political guy, but you know, sometimes as sports fans, we get to dive in and put our hats on. Exactly. And, and that's, yeah, there's so much going on that, that we all need to be aware because it's just going to be rapidly changing information for months and months on end. Dan, thank you again. So, um, and we'll talk soon, my friend, I'm sure of it uh, for Daniel Lust. Uh, I am David Grove, and this has been another episode of Hard to Pay.